Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk with two nurses about the care provided when someone is the victim of sexual assault. If they decide on an exam, we will obtain a really detailed history about the events of the incident, as well as a medical history. We'll do a head-to-toe exam, um, assessing them for injuries and collecting forensic evidence if it's appropriate and if that's what they want. Then we'll learn about a minimally invasive treatment for sinusitis. Using uh, small tools and cameras in the nose under local anesthetic in the office uh, to dilate the drainage pathways of the nose. And we'll hear about refugee health care in Syracuse from the upstate pediatrician who takes care of many refugee children. Every refugee comes with a story. The more we can do to just respect and understand, I think the better we serve them in whatever capacity we interact with them. All that and a visit from our healing muse. But first, the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, an ear, nose, and throat doctor will talk about sinusitis treatment options. Then we'll explore what healthcare is like for children who arrive in Syracuse as refugees. But first, let's hear about the delicate care and documentation required for patients who have been sexually assaulted. In Syracuse, the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Program, SANE, each year takes care of close to 300 patients who have been sexually assaulted. The program sees patients at St. Joseph's Hospital Health Center, Krauss Hospital, and at Upstate University Hospital. Two nurses are here to talk about their role. They are Ann Galloway, the SANE Program Director, and the Child Abuse Referral and Evaluation Program Nurse Manager at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital and Kathy Bradley, who is also part of the SANE program, as well as the coordinator for the Upstate Best Beginnings Childbirth and New Family class. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So 300 patients per year averages out to five or six patients each week. Um, are these patients who've been raped or been the victim of some type of sexual violence? Are m most of them women? The majority of the patients that we see are women, but we do, of course, see male victims as well. But yes, they're acute victims of sexual assault that we see in hospital emergency departments. Okay. But the majority, um, nine out of 10 are female. Um, one in five women and one in 71 men will be raped at some point in life. Is that some of the data that I saw? That That's the data that we've seen, yes. Okay. And then you also see children as well? And in, in, in those numbers includes children. It includes children. Patients, okay. yes. Yeah, and about one in four girls and about one in six boys will be sexually abused before they turn 18, which wow. includes, you know, um, sexual assault as well as sexual abuse. And we do see all ages in our program. When you break it down to those numbers, it's pretty sobering. One out of four, one out of six. Yeah, yeah and I think awareness, people are more aware you know, these days. And some of the statistics, um, one in 10 women who are raped, um, they are raped by an intimate partner. So, um, and the other piece about um, sexual assault is that um, sexual assault is about two out of every three sexual assaults go unreported. So statistics are, um, 
you know, you gotta, you gotta take them with a grain of salt because uh, most sexual assaults do not get reported. And so we may not ha even capture them as far as because statistics. Because of, of it, victims feel ashamed or because they don't wanna report someone like you mentioned, an intimate partner or? Right, for yeah. various reasons and that would. Yeah, I think all of those things. Wow. Right. Well, tell me about what is a sexual assault nurse examiner or SANE, and what's, I've also heard sexual assault forensic examiner, mm -hmm. SAFE. Um, so tell me what, what those are. So they're minimally registered nurses um, who have received additional education in caring for victims, acute victims of sexual assault. Historically, emergency departments cared for these patients, and ED nurses and physicians routinely didn't receive any additional education they also had a lot of other patients to take care of. Right. So we wanted to introduce nurses who wanted to do this and receive the additional education and felt comfortable doing it and so offered patients a, a better job. Okay. All right. Well, is it available at every hospital? At all four hospitals. The only hospital that we don't see patients is at the Veterans Administration Hospital. Okay. All four hospitals here in the Syracuse area. What about the outlying um, rural communities? You know, that is always a need. Um, justifying having nurses available 24 hours a day is, is kind of hard to do when the numbers are less than what we see in Onondaga County. There are, Cuga County has a small program at Auburn Hospital. Um, Tompkins County has a small program. Um, Cortland County is developing a program. So in some areas, there are same programs. And certainly across New York State, down in New York City, there are several programs. And across the country, there are a lot of programs. In, in, in fact, New York State and Onondaga County developed our programs in the 90s. Other programs had started back in the 70s across the country. So, If uh, a, someone, if there's a victim in an outlying area, would they ever be transferred into Syracuse? They do. We they do, do get transferred, yes. Okay. And they're, and they're yeah. typically transferred to University Hospital as... Right. What happens is sometimes patients show up and this staff don't have the facilities or they don't have someone a sane or a safe and they feel more comfortable transferring them um, to a facility that does. Okay well tell me um, when when you do have a patient what does a sane uh, nurse do what like actually what what can a patient expect? Well um, the hospital contacts Vera House so there's a hotline Okay. And once the hotline is contacted, a nurse and an advocate are dispatched, which is really important. The, the advocate really provides the emotional support to the patient while we provide the physical assessment. And is this 24 hours? 24 Sorry. hours a day, okay. yes. Yeah. So we will typically arrive within 60 minutes of being called, and we will meet the patient and kind of offer them options. Lots of times patients don't know why they're coming to the hospital. They don't know all of the um, decisions that they can or need to make. They may want to make sure that they're physically okay. They may want medications to help protect them from infections or pregnancy. Um, they may want to contact law enforcement and they're just not really sure the best thing to do. So the nurse really will sit with them, talk to them about their options and let them decide what they want to do. Um, and then we, if, if they decide on an exam, we will obtain a really detailed history about the events of the incident, as well as a medical history. We'll do a head-to-toe exam, um, assessing them for injuries and collecting forensic evidence if it's appropriate and if that's what they want, working all the while with the ED physician and nurses in you know, providing the best care for that patient. Now, when does law enforcement come into this? I mean, if, if law enforcement comes into it. 
Well, the patient has the option of contacting law enforcement. If they want to report it to law enforcement, they can. Um, New York State Department of Health actually requires hospitals to offer evidence collection and hold it for a minimum of 30 days while the patient decides whether or not, whether or not they want to go to the police. So the patient really has time to make that decision. But the best thing for them to do is to get to a hospital to have the evidence collected as quickly as possible while it's still on their body if there's evidence. And then, and then they can make those decisions afterwards. But it's really up to the patient as far as adults and adolescents, and as long as it's not a child abuse incident, to contact law enforcement. Okay. Now, do you advise um, victims before they get to the hospital not to shower, not to change clothes? I mean, what, what do they need to do before they get to the hospital, or how do they get to the hospital? Yeah. Um, well, if they call the hotline um, and they'll re reach someone with Vera House, um, they will certainly advise them um, not to um, shower if they've not... Um, change clothes to keep keep they don't keep their clothes on um, and not change and then to report you know to the to the hospital they'll, they'll as far as if they are wanting an exam and evidence collected um, so yes that would be the ideal situation we certainly see patients who have changed or have showered and we would still encourage them to come in um, because you know they're you know they can still have an exam if they're interested Okay. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with nurses Kathy Bradley and Ann Galloway about caring for patients who've been sexually assaulted. Um, so the difference between a registered nurse who's not um, SANE trained um, and a nurse who is SANE trained, have there been comparisons between the types of care that's offered and the outcomes of that? There have been studies done um, where they've compared, and typically if, if a nurse is not SANE trained, um, the care that's provided to them is kind of provided by the ED physician with the nurse kind of supporting that exam. So what they're really looking at is the ED physician's success in, in mm. performing the exam. Um, but they have done studies which have shown that nurses who have been trained have provided more optimal care and have collected better evidence. And that better evidence can translate to a more successful court outcome and all through the legal system, right? Right, right. One study showed about 96% um, proper specimen collection was performed by SANES versus 86% by physicians, because it's usually the physicians who are doing the um, pelvic exam or the speculum exam during, during that. So um, really it's a positive um, impact um, if you have increased um, increased evidence collection or proper evidence collection, there's a better potential for successful prosecution, which, you know, it's overall positive okay. thing for the patient if that's what they're choosing. Now, is it true that um, Upstate and St. Joe's are both centers of excellence? That's correct. Through the New York State Department of Health, they've um, designated both University Hospital and St. Joe's as centers of excellence for SAFE. Okay. And how how did uh, how do you attain that designation? Well, there's an application process, um, and there are certain standards that need to be met. There need to be nurses who've been trained to provide those services. There need to be certain um, physical um, um, things in the hospital. There has to be a shower available. There has to be a private room available, things like that. So there are certainly standards that okay. 
So it's like a seal of approval. Correct. Yeah. Now, um, what are does the uh, state, New York State Health Department, have some requirements regarding this for testing and medications and that sort of thing? Um, so as far as um, New York State does require that all hospitals have um, established policies and procedures to care for victims of sexual assault, um, including having immediately available prophylactic medications for sexually transmitted infections, HIV and pregnancy. So that's really standard um, across the board for any emergency room, um, regardless. So that is a New York State requirement. Um, how, also, how often is it that a sexually transmitted disease is contracted during an attack, or does that happen often? Or you know, well, yeah, yeah. The actual statistics. Well, as far as pregnancy is about, they say about five percent. Um, there's a five percent rate of. Okay. Um, becoming pregnant. Um, sexually transmitted infections are different because obviously you're, you're only being exposed to that infection if the person is positive. So um, for HIV, I know the rate is, is very low, it less is very than, low. Um, yeah. you know, very, very low. But um, the others, I don't have those statistics in, in front of me, but it's higher for gonorrhea and chlamydia. It's also dependent on the community, what's prevalent and all that. And um, it's high in our so community, high, though. If so. it's high in our community, then the statistics would be higher, but we don't have statistics. I imagine that must be a big fear, though, for many of the victims. It's, you know, what the outcome or, you know, what's happened afterward. Exactly. Definitely. It is, and I think that's part of our education is patients don't even think about that when they come in. Mm -hmm. They may not consider all of the, um, the repercussions yeah. of what's happened to them. You know, if someone who isn't their intimate partner has done this to them and they have an intimate partner, then they need to consider that they may have been exposed to these things and then have to, you know, protect their partner. Um, and, and it's also just the first step for patients. So when they come in to see us, lots of times, they really would like to forget about it afterwards. They want to go home, they want to shower, and they want to forget about it. But there are really important things after we see them um, to continue um, the process to make sure that they stay healthy, to have another exam, to make sure that they haven't contracted any infections or gotten pregnant from the incident. Um, so those are that's all part of, and I think that's what part of makes the same program more successful in that we have the time to spend with the patient because we don't have other patients that we're caring for. We actually spend about four hours when we go in to see each patient, minimally. Wow. Minimally, yeah. Uh, and with the advocate. You mentioned there's yes. an advocate as well that's... Yes, right. yeah. So what do you tell them about when, they, when, they're, when all of the exam is done and they're ready to go home and shower and maybe try to forget about it? What, what other sorts of follow-up care do you recommend? Yeah, we recommend a follow-up exam in two weeks um, to, again, be tested to reassess if they have injuries, to make sure that the injuries are healing. Um, if, they're, if they're starting on medications to help prevent HIV exposure or transfer, then they would need to see somebody within a week, okay. um, a specialist in caring for patients who may have been exposed. Um, and that's something that if they take those medications, they're actually going to be on those medications for about a month. So over the course of that month, you know, we try to tell them to take care of themselves, you know, make sure that they eat healthy because the medications can have side effects, um, to make sure that they stay hydrated, and to make sure that they use protection if they're going to be intimate with, um, you know, their partner. And then what, uh, in terms of, like, psychological support, are there um, things yeah. in the community that... Yeah, the... Um 
um, advocates will um, generally will f provide some follow-up or give them um, a brochure to follow up with the um, um, Vera House or um, McMahon Ryan for, for, for children or under 18, right? Um, and those, basically, they're going to um, ask for them to be able to have permission to call them, and they will um, call them to, to see how they're doing. Um, and they can have give them access to um, counseling and um, support services if they need that. Well, I want to make sure that our listeners know we'll have the phone numbers, the hotline right. numbers on our website okay. um, at healthlinkonair.org. But Vera House is 315-468-3260. And then the McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center is 315-883-5617. Um, and we'll have those resources on our website as well. Great. Um, my guests have been sexual assault nurse examiners Kathy Bradley and Ann Galloway. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air podcast and talk show. Next up, a simple treatment for sinusitis on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. My guest today is an ear, nose, and throat specialist from Upstate, Dr. Jesse Ryan, who is here to address treatment options for sinusitis. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So let's start out with um, a definition of sinusitis. What what is what does that mean? So when we say sinusitis uh, in the ear, nose, and throat world, we're mostly talking about chronic sinusitis, meaning symptoms that have been present for more than three months. And these are symptoms such as nasal congestion, post-nasal drip, facial pain and pressure, especially over the cheekbones or over the nose, between the eyes. Um, some patients report headaches. And then in combination with this, often patients will have exacerbations of their sinus problems seasonally associated with allergies as the weather changes. So they may have several infections a year um, in addition to their daily symptoms. So that's the main group. And then there's a separate group that's a smaller category that's called recurrent acute sinusitis. And these are patients who have four or more episodes of an acute infection treated with antibiotics, but near resolution, near complete resolution of their symptoms in between episodes. Um, but that overall, that's a smaller category. And often patients don't fit neatly into one um, particular group. Some people have more infections. Some people have more daily symptoms. So is sinusitis something that affects many people? It's a major problem in the country. It's a quality of life problem, you know, more than what you think of as a massive medical problem. But when you look at number of people, uh, we're talking about numbers such as 37 million people in the United States, and we're talking about health care costs of in the billions of dollars, some estimates of $8 billion a year in costs to treat sinusitis. Um, another uh, statistic that 
I've seen is useful is one in five antibiotics prescribed in the United States is for sinusitis. So it's a problem that affects a lot of people in a quality of life way that may not drive them to the doctor, um, but is impacting their ability to go to work, to care for their family, to do the activities that they like to do. Right. And so if you're dragging, you're not able to go to work or school. And Okay. So is sinusitis the same thing as a sinus infection? Right. So the, the uh, a sinus infection that all of us may get on occasion, that would be what we'd call an acute sinus infection. So you have a cold, it lasts for a week, you think you're going to get better, then all of a sudden a lot of drainage from the nose, facial pain and pressure, a fever, that's an acute sinusitis. And everyone's allowed to have that. And if that just happens on occasion and you feel fine in between, then there's nothing to worry about. It's when uh, you have daily symptoms that never really go away or you're getting multiple infections a year, or more commonly in our patient group, both things. So some level of baseline symptoms and then infections on top of that. So if, if you fall into that category, it might be time to see a specialist. Right. That's the time to see someone. And one of the problems is that patients, uh, because it's kind of this low-level um, quality of life issue, it's not driving them to the doctor. Often they'll go to urgent care because they have an infection and it's the simplest thing to do and they're trying to pick up their children from school and take them to lacrosse practice and they've got an infection and so it's not something that you know drives them in uh, to their regular doctor in between um, but I think knowing that there are treatment options out there for people who have these baseline symptoms that maybe aren't you know showing up in the emergency room or, or even to their regular doctor. So what, um, what's an evaluation like? If someone makes an appointment with an ear, nose, and throat doctor for this, what can they expect at the first appointment? So for chronic sinus problems, so we're going to go through a um, discussion of what their symptoms are and how long it's been going on. We want to make sure that the medical treatment's been optimized. So for us, that means making sure, considering allergies, nasal sprays, many of which are over-the-counter now, these are things like uh, brand names such as Flonase or Nasonex, and they're mm -hmm. sold under generics now, um, using saltwater rinses in the nose. Uh, and then often it's um, using either a longer course of antibiotics or if patients have been on one or two courses of antibiotics. So making sure that we've optimized medical management. And then once medical management's optimized, if symptoms are still present, then we want to obtain a CT scan of the sinuses and we'd call that a treated CT scan. So we'd like the scan to look as good as possible so that we're not over-offering in terms of interventions or procedures. So do the scan when they're feeling the best that they feel as opposed to when they are sickest? Cor correct. We want to get the scan after they've been on a sufficient treatment at least several weeks of the nasal sprays, saltwater rinses, and either a couple different antibiotics or one longer course of antibiotics. Um, often during the exam in the office, we'll take a look with a small camera inside the nose to try to see if there's any signs of active infection or inflammation or, or any um, inflammatory changes in the nose that might be blocking the drainage of the sinuses. Okay. Well, I want to hear about um, treatment options, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jesse Ryan, an otolaryngologist at Upstate who treats chronic sinusitis. So once the medical management, once the medications aren't really offering the relief that's needed, um, what are the options that you can offer people? 
So what we do is um, I typically will bring a patient back to the office, uh, either on the same day they get the CT scan or following it, the combination of what symptoms are still present and what the scan looks like. So we'll sit and look at the scan together in the office in detail and specifically looking at the drainage patterns for the sinuses and what is blocked and how that relates to their symptoms. So there are three uh, main categories of treatment options for patients. One is to continue medical management. So continue with saltwater rinses and nasal sprays and allergy medications, antibiotics when you need them. And because this is a quality of life problem, that's almost always an option for patients. Nobody needs to have a procedure done. If they're tired of taking antibiotics or want to consider the next level, then uh, the next step are office-based procedures. So that's using uh, small tools and cameras in the nose under local anesthetic in the office uh, to dilate the drainage pathways of the nose that are affected either on the scan or based on symptoms. And then a small number of patients will need to go on to have a surgery in the operating room. So I would say in our practice now, it's a much lower percentage. Um, the data has been fairly compelling that the uh, improvement in symptoms and reduction in infections are essentially equivalent if you do a more aggressive surgery in the operating room or a less invasive procedure in the office. But in the office, you get faster return to work, lower risks than going to the operating room, and you don't burn any bridges. And in my mind, it's like you have a, a tooth, uh, you have a cavity, right? Do you fill the cavity or do you pull the tooth? Well, the, the dentist, for the most part, will fill the cavity first before they pull the tooth. So this is um, akin to that in the in the sinus world. And then you have another option if the if the first one doesn't work, you have something right. to fall the, back on. The, uh, the data that's coming out would suggest that about 5% of patients will fail the initial treatment or go on to need uh, another therapy, whether it's an additional procedure in the office or a surgery in the operating room in the following two years. But for the vast majority of patients, it's been a durable um, improvement in symptoms. So if you get a benefit, and most people do, who, who, have the, who are eligible for the procedure, uh, then that benefit's expected to stay with them. So what are the sinus passages blocked by? So the, the normal anatomy of the sinuses relies on very small outflow pathways on the order of a few millimeters. So it can be just a variant of anatomy. Some people are at higher risk because they have narrower passages than others. Others can be commonly allergy may promote a little bit of inflammation around the outflow tract, and that shifts patients over a threshold where now instead of just having normal drainage, they get pain and pressure. Um, they get increased risk of having an infection. So where you might get a cold and you get over the cold, some patients get a cold, and every time that Can't happens, it, it turns into a sinus okay. infection. So that's a common uh, pathway that we see. So tell me about this, how this works with this in-office balloon sinus dilation. Right. It's, this has been an exciting uh, development in the sinus world. Um, the devices were FDA approved 10 years ago now, or slightly more than 10 years ago. So it's been around and um, initially was used more in the operating room, but as we've been better at getting uh, patients comfortable in the office and using our local anesthesia protocols, we've been able to transition more and more patients to the office. We've been able to offer um, additional procedures that normally would be done in the operating room in the office as well. So these are 
tools that allow us to treat patients less invasively um, and equally effectively with lower risk and faster return to activity. Uh, they're typically a small six millimeter balloon that we're using. So we use a, a three millimeter. It goes millimeter in through the nose? Through the nose. So we first we numb patients up uh, with a lot of topical numbing agents. We let them sit for 15 or 20 minutes in the nose. And then we do some small injections in the nose once you're numb. So similar to a dental type visit. And our goal for the procedure is about a, a pain scale of one or two out of 10 for the whole procedure. And you know, overall, we're able to achieve that. Um, often patients really don't feel the injections once they've been numbed up sufficiently. Um, then we use a, a three millimeter rigid camera in the nose and do the procedure on a monitor in the office. Um, the balloon device itself, nothing stays in the nose. It, it does the dilation and then comes out. So it inflates? It inflates to uh, a high level of pressure that's able to kind of shift over um, little eggshell size bones in the nose that surround the drainage pathways. So the balloon will expand to six millimeters and uh, open the drainage pathway, and then the balloon comes out. And that tool can be used to address uh, between one sinus or six sinuses, depending on where the symptoms are um, and how bad the problem is. So how long will it stay open if you've open the passageway, does it? Well, the, the data that's out has followed patients for a couple of years, and the patients who get a positive result have maintained that result out to a couple of years. Hmm. Um, the data are still coming out for longer term results, but the expectation is that once it's open and working, that it should stay open. The caveat would be if you have severe underlying allergies, there's no procedure or surgery that's going to change that. You know, those symptoms still need to be treated. So patients may still need nasal sprays or saltwater rinses in the nose. Um, and that's a patient-to-patient -patient variation depending on what their underlying problem is. Uh, well, are, are there any risks to the procedure? There are, of course. Any procedure has its risks. Um, the biggest risk would be that it fails to solve someone's problem or that they need another procedure in the future. So we track uh, a sinus questionnaire that looks at 20 different areas and asks patients to grade them from zero to five. So we check that before the procedure and then add a few months afterwards to look for an improvement. So again, if you get an improvement on that uh, kind of quality of life scale, that tends to be maintained. Um, so that would be maybe not a serious risk, but a, a possible problem. On the more serious risk side, we tell every patient that any sinus surgery, we're working between the eyes and below the brain, called the skull base, which separates the brain from the nose. So in traditional operating room sinus surgery where bones are being removed and, and cut, that a risk of injury to one of those structures is about one in a thousand. And I tell patients that that risk is lower in the office, but never zero. Okay, well, that makes sense. It's an exciting option to have to be able to offer. It, it's been very exciting to uh, to help bring this to the Syracuse area, and um, I think it's it's been great for many patients, and we're hopeful that it continues to be a really positive experience for patients. I appreciate you being here to explain it. My guest has been sinusitis expert Dr. Jesse Ryan from Upstate's Department of Otolaryngology. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate HealthLink on Air.
Coming up next, providing health care to refugee children in Syracuse. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Here with me today is Dr. Andrea Shaw. She's a pediatrician at Upstate who's going to talk about the care she provides to refugee children. Welcome, Dr. Shaw. Thank you. So um, I wanted to start with you explaining what your practice is like. I know you care for a lot of um, refugee children. Um, so what is that like for you? What, what countries are represented in your practice? So I'd say it's a really wonderful opportunity to essentially practice global medicine right here in Syracuse because our patients come from all over the world and they follow the waves that refugees resettle in Syracuse through two major agencies that come through Syracuse who we work very closely with. Um, I have the luxury of meeting refugees within their first 90 days of coming and getting to know large families who have not had the opportunity to have consistent primary care or consistent doctors see them over time. Um, and so it's really a privilege to be at the helm of not only addressing their needs that have sometimes lingered for years uh, while they've had a life in turmoil, but also new challenges that arise once they settle here um, and things that we work toward together uh, as I get to know them. But the, as far as countries where they come from, they certainly span the globe and every year they shift as far as the majority. And over the years, they, we've had waves of people coming from, you know, back in the 70s or 80s, we had Vietnamese and Eastern Europeans, followed by Africans from South Sudan and Somalia, but we still see many of these waves continue. So the more recent wave that most people are familiar with, uh, the conflict in Syria, but there's still plenty of uh, refugees coming from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I say our biggest wave from Africa is certainly from D Democratic Republic of Congo, followed by Somalia, Burundi, uh, still coming from Sudan, uh, and Eritrea and other places in Africa. And we still have a large contingent coming from Burma and from, from Burmese, the Burmese population and Bhutanese population who were di displaced many years ago but lived many years in camps before they were able to resettle. How are you able to communicate? Do you have translators or do you, do you speak other languages? I'm not medically fluent in any other language other than English. So even though I may know bits and pieces and greetings in, in different languages and some conversational bits here and there, I certainly rely on medical translators heavily throughout the day. And Upstate has really done an incredible job in investing in various different opportunities. I have the option for every patient I have to use audio, uh, phone translation, a video translation um, for those service, for those languages that it's available with an iPad, um, as well as live interpreters that I could schedule to come. And Upstate is very open and has really helped us be innovative in this. I'd say we use the iPad um, for pediatrics most consistently, just because it's really nice where the interpreter can actually see view the whole room. They can see both parents. They can see all of the children. And they can often see what I'm trying to demonstrate to parents or might be looking at on an exam. So they wind up being more of an interactive component. Um, but every patient is different. And assessing every uh, patient's 
interest and need uh, is important when dealing with translators because, for instance, somebody might not be comfortable with looking at somebody who they may or may not know or they may or may not be from sure. a particular area that they're from. Um, and so all of these are important and sensitive issues that you really have to work with the patients up front because if you're not comfortable communicating from the beginning, you're not going to accomplish what you need to accomplish together. Sure. So. So as, um, as the pediatrician seeing a child for the first time um, who's a refugee, what, what sorts of things are you having to think about um, in terms of their care? Are you looking for immediate medical issues? Are you thinking about I don't, vaccinations and things like that? What would, what would encompass the visit? All of it. So okay. um, very interesting is that we th all the refugees who come to us have a medical clearance exam six months prior to coming done by the... IOM. IOM is the International Organization of Migration, who is an intergovernmental body responsible for the tail end of the vetting process that usually lasts over the course of two years. Um, but this medical exam needs to be done within a six-month window of new, newly arriving refugees. Okay. So this will be a document that usually has reviewed the patient's medical history, would include any vaccinations they have proper records for, often administered while they're in a refugee camp, any medications that were given just prior to departure, and any screening for things like tuberculosis that would have occurred during that six months prior to coming. So it comes in a bit of a skeletal form, but that's the basic information that usually gives us leads on whether or not this child has a chronic condition that may need more attention, uh, often birth defects and chronic medical issues that didn't have specialty care attention there, uh, but are needs that the children will have. We also have clues to malnutrition uh, when we see growth uh, documentation from these records. So we try to review all of what we can, which is usually available for, I'd say, 75 to 80 percent of our patients who come. We have this documentation available through the CDC, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, prior to them coming. Then the patients arrive, we take a careful history from the parents, birth history, their developmental history, and any concerns that the parents might have, and being very aware of things like surgeries that may not have been uh, quite as carefully done overseas, different infectious risks that patients may have been exposed to, children who come from severe malaria zones who may have gotten blood transfusions and blood products from, refugee, or from family members. So all of these things are sort of risk factors that we'll assess with the parents. And then moving forward from there, we do a basic physical exam. We review vaccinations that are recommended for them uh, in order to enter school here and plan for their booster visits over the course of the year and addressing any of these concerns that arise. So certainly... And it could be any age child uh, that you could see uh, from infancy to teens or whatever, right? Yep. Absolutely. And often moms come pregnant, and so we get newborns shortly after okay. arrival who've been exposed to things from the refugee camp indirectly because of mom's pregnancy. Um, but yes, we'll have anyone usually six months and older who's arriving. Um, and so their immediate health needs certainly address things that went on from child, from birth that were not addressed issues of malnutrition, issues of parasites that they may have been exposed to, lack of vaccinations that they received. But then once their life transitions here, we see a lot of the challenges in pediatrics that mirror our populations here. So the rise in pediatric obesity is actually higher risk in children who were malnourished previously because of how their metabolism had changed. Interesting. And so we see a lot of new interesting trends that are really important to keep an eye on. Um, and we also see different risk factors that can't fully be explained. For example, 
somebody who may have um, more severe high blood pressure or diabetes that is actually linked with a life of chronic stress and toxic stress prior to that. But we're seeing it in kids who are not necessarily overweight or who do not necessarily have the family health risk factors um, that we've classically attributed these conditions to in the United States. And then lastly, but it's still a huge underlying theme to all of this, is how trauma plays out in these kids' lives. Because even when you take a history from the parents and you understand the trauma that these parents and these children have been through along the way, you can't appreciate all of the ways that it's going to manifest in each particular child along the way. So they may manifest signs of acute stress as all of these changes happen, uh, but then there's later things like behavioral challenges or other stresses that come out as the kid's been here for years. And so being aware of all these things and how it affects the kid's growth and development is important. Good point. Uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate pediatrician Andrea Shaw about refugee health. Um, that's interesting. Now tell me, how did you get involved in refugee health? So it's really nice to be back in Syracuse because... Because you grew up here. Grew up yeah. here. So uh, certainly opportunities that I had through my church when I was in high school, I would say would be the first exposure that I had. Um, so there were volunteers from my church growing up who would go downtown and be acquainted with new refugee families. And so I met Bosnian families and Somali families uh, at that time in high school. And you fall in love with the people, you fall in love with their stories, and you're in every way trying to help them navigate this strange new world that they live in, whether or not it's getting a winter coat before before the first snowstorm hits or it's helping them navigate to a doctor's appointment that maybe you knew something about, more about that health facility that they're going to that you could possibly help them with. You become a trusted face for the family and you become somebody that they rely on and that's a relationship that doesn't go away. I'm still in touch with families that I knew of back when I was in high school. And so wow. circling back after my medical training and other adventures have taken me away from Syracuse. It's really nice to be back, to be part of this community again, because Syracuse has been a consistent sanctuary city for refugees over many, many years. When did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? Good Was question. In high school? <laughs> Was that, were you sort of drawn to medicine in high school? Or? Well, I started off uh, my career at Cornell in marine biology. And so that was, that was always the dream. And looking at coral disease and climate change and had certainly fallen in love with this undersea world. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think I really v valued the connections that I made with people. And not that sea fans and corals and coral disease were not interesting and fascinating, um, but I really valued the exchange that I had with people on all different levels of my work. So even though the science was fascinating, I needed a way to connect with the human side of things again. And so that's where I had decided to come back to Upstate for medical school after my undergrad career. Neat, neat. Well, let's get back to um, your medical practice. Um, the refugees that you see from a particular country, um, Somalia or or whatever country, do they have health needs that differ from immigrants that come from the same country? And maybe you can talk about the difference between refugees and immigrants. Yeah, very good question. So, so one of the biggest questions we have for refugees is not only where have you come from, where have you been born, where does your family culturally identify, but also where have you been along the way. So I think that's the major difference. Where have you come from and where have you been is a story of a refugee's life that often isn't as clearly mapped out in an immigrant's life, where they're coming from a particular country to rejoin a family member here in Syracuse or 
um, they have steady plans along the way to really reshift their life. Whereas a refugee, by definition, is fearing persecution. So they've left their, they left their homeland, they left their livelihood, they left their family and everything they knew and loved with often little more than what they can carry on their head or their back to make it to a second country where they can simply be safe. So that fear of persecution may come from war, maybe political persecution, tribal persecution, sexual orientation persecution, religious persecution, you name it. That fear has left them to drive them from home. So they're their process of coming starts with a traumatic start that is often different from the immigrant's story. Then you have the complications of the months to years that they will spend in various steps along the way. Some transfer from different countries along the way. Some of them stay in one particular country for years up to decades before they even resettle. And so I think that whole process brings new layers of challenges to the refugee that you, you can only understand by asking their story and trying to be open to whatever they bring forward. And so understanding that path and the layers of trauma and the layers of freedoms that they gave up living in a refugee camp with the uncertainty of day-to-day -day life there, without livelihood, without very quality schools or access to healthcare, and then giving that up when they say, we will seek asylum, wherever the United Nations High Commissioner for, hum for Refugee Resettlement decides we will go, we will go. And so then after two years of security clearance, they may be settled in one of 26 countries. And at that point, they've deemed that that's the safest path for their family. But that was a difficult decision for them right. to make along the way. Right. So every refugee comes with a story. Every story is human. And the more we can do to just respect and understand what they've gone through, I think the better we serve them in whatever capacity we interact with them. Well, and Syracuse being a sanctuary city has, uh, how, how many refugees did we get last year that resettled here? It was over 1,400. It's a lot of interaction, I mean, people could interact with refugees possibly. There's, there's a lot in this community. Do you have any advice for what um, we can do in Syracuse to support refugees? Catholic Charities and Interfaith Works are the two main refugee resettlement organizations in this city. And they, in connection with many community partners, work very hard to continue to try to find quality job opportunities, safe housing, um, and ongoing support for the refugees on so many levels. So reaching out to those agencies on a broader level, certainly in, in ways that you might be able to help or support these vulnerable families, is certainly the best way to streamline our efforts. Because the goal is sort of self-sufficiency over a number of years um, for refugees that resettle in Syracuse. So um, quality employment, housing, those are all kind of continual issues, right? Yep, they're so. ongoing issues. And these refugees over time become no longer refugees, but they're part of the fabric of our global community in Syracuse. So they are our neighbors, they're next to us at our places of worship, they're in front of us at the grocery store, they're next to us at the in the doctor's office waiting room. So just reaching out to them as fellow humans in ways that we can continue to connect and keep our mind and hearts open to them is the most important thing we okay, can offer. Very good. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. My guest has been upstate pediatrician Andrea Shaw. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air podcast and radio show.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. All of us know the irritation of waiting in the doctor's office. The appointment is for 10 o'clock, say, and we wonder how close to 11 it will be before we are seen. Kristen Plotz, a Massachusetts writer and former attorney, gives us a different perspective in her essay, Single Vision, Double Take. Here is an excerpt. Quiet but palpable annoyance slowly mounted, legs crossed and uncrossed with heavy sighs, down parkas shifted on laps to make room for dated magazines. Someone opened a granola bar, the crinkle of the wrapper cutting through the silence like a butcher's knife on bone. Restraint from complaining was wearing thin. I should have been irritated too, but I knew enough to bring a book this time. I was scheduled for three o'clock sharp. It was a few minutes past four when I finally sat in his chair. My plan to avoid the rush of commuter traffic home was increasingly unlikely, but at least I got the chance to read. I found it hard to be angry with the doctor who carefully cut open my eye four months ago to correct brutal double vision. It was even harder to hold on to anger when he expressed genuine interest in the book I carried, or when he warm-heartedly revealed that he has a daughter only a year older than mine, sharing a few tidbits about what, yet, what is yet to come. The post-op exam took all of five minutes with various lights and lenses. I couldn't ask for a better outcome, he said. Eyes now aligned and vision fully restored. I was having my last visit. And then he told me more about his daughter while reaching under his desk into his tattered briefcase. He pulled out a folded slip of paper and showed it to me. He had photocopied a comic strip for her, something to boost her spirits as she walked through the quagmire of third grade relationships. In that brief instant, he shifted from pragmatic doctor to doting father. In turn, I suggested a book he might want to read to better understand the dynamics of young girls and their friendships. As I left his exam room a few minutes later, he double-checked the title I recommended. Then we parted ways, likely forever. Walking toward the elevator to go home, I felt lighter than I did just an hour before. I was softened more by what he shared with me than by what he solved for me. I was in that exam room for longer than necessary because he chose to connect with a patient, despite a waiting room full of ten more. It didn't matter that I will probably never return. There was no professional need on his part to build more trust and rapport, yet he took the time to engage. I suspect everyone else in that waiting room was also treated with similar humanity when it was finally their turn. Perhaps that's why he gets behind in the first instance. As the train pulled into the station, I was deeply grateful once again to have the unfettered ability to notice the elegance of the everyday, to witness the endless marvels all around me, all because of a doctor who graciously takes the time to run late. listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York.
Please join us next week when we talk with a hand specialist about wrist injuries and a nurse and a dietitian about stroke prevention. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.